Happy Sabbath, everyone. It's really good to see you all here today. It's communion. It's our probably our most sacred service of the quarter, and it's good to see you here. A couple of things I'd like to mention first. I just noticed in the bulletin, yes, I read the bulletin, that next Sabbath is Pathfinder Investiture. Correct me if I'm wrong. Because I was down to preach. I don't mind being here, though, for the Pathfinder Investiture. That would be wonderful. Is that on? For sure? Is it on? Pathfinder Investiture next week? Amen. I'll be there for it. <coughs> Excellent. That's good. <coughs> Who's the preacher? Pathfinder's good. I mean, I can if you ask me, but you've got to give me some notice. That's all. All right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I don't know whether I should say this just yet, but um, I don't know how many of you know that I'm on the staffing committee, which means we've got to sit there through many, many meetings trying to place people in positions in churches next year. And we've had something like about 12 or 13 changes uh, it's been absolutely crazy. But one of the interesting things is they've got a number of interns, as they normally do, and um, pretty much before camp, I was real cheeky to ask for one of those interns. Um, he's a guy whose father I know relatively well, and he'll be really well suited in the work that needs to get done. And... Um, Although the executive has not approved it, the boss has sent out letters to all the ministers telling them what's going on, and this intern has actually got in touch with me, telling me that he's coming up to work with me. And that's from the boss too. So I guess if the boss has told the other guys, and he's told me through that young fellow, <coughs> so you're going to see a fresh new face next year by the looks of it. I'll get him to preach. He needs to do a lot more with the other church. I've got the other guy that I'm mentoring... But if you don't know the gentleman, his name is Harley Southwell. How many of you know Lyle Southwell? If you do, yes. His boy. And if he's anything like his father, I'm going to have to put a leash on him, I think. Okay, it's going to be interesting. going to be interesting. All right, um, we're here to talk about, oh, about the Lord, actually. Um, can we put that on for us? Um, how do you picture God? Oh, the other bit of news first before I start is that after next week, I'm away until the new year. So um, uh, I won't be thinking of you. I'm sorry. I'll be down with my granddaughter and daughter for just letting you know that um, you'll see me in the new year. But I'm first up here. So uh, you're the last ones to see me in the, this year and the first ones to see me next year. There you go. All right. How do you picture God? How do you picture God? It's interesting, isn't it? It's a question that we've probably never thrown out there at all, at any given time. I mean, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So often we look at Jesus, that would be right. But how do you picture God? And we come at it from our worldview, don't we? Our own personal experience. I mean, when he was God the Father, and I used to talk to him all the time, and I still do, um... He's nothing like my father, so I certainly couldn't put him within that realm. Do you know what I'm saying? But how do you picture God? All right, I'm going to throw a picture up on the board, and it's going to 
display, it's going to portray Jesus doing something. Now, Jesus represents God, right? And he's washing the feet of several world leaders. Now, let's see if I get this right. Okay, am I in the way there? I can move this, I think. Okay. Okay. He's watching the feet of several world leaders, but you notice there's somebody sitting in the midst of those world leaders and um, got to raise eyebrows, I think. Well, let me tell you, in 2007, a group of Adventists hired Lars Justinen to paint this picture, the one that you're looking at right now. And they had contracts with several shopping centres in Seattle to hang these posters for advertising a Bible conference. So obviously they're putting it up there to provoke thought, to provoke comment and to advertise a Bible conference. But no sooner had those posters gone up than angry calls began pouring into the centres. Many people, mostly Christians it seems, mostly Christians it seems, were highly offended at the image of Jesus washing the feet of a terrorist. And there was such an outcry that each of the shopping centres decided to go back on their contract, take the posters down. And then the Christian college that was hosting the event also cancelled their contract. Here's the question. Does their reaction illustrate how every other Adventist thinks? Hmm. We were almost coming into that today when you raised that question. The protesters simply could not believe that Jesus would wash Osama bin Laden's feet. Do you think he would have done if he was at that supper? Absolutely. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. <clears throat> and yet 1 John 2 verse 2 tells us that Jesus died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So if he died for all of our sins, and that's where you're heading today too, so it's all in keeping. God... God knows what he's doing when he puts this stuff together, I think. All right. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> could it be, though, that many Christians wanted Jesus who would defend their country and hate their national in enemies just as much as they do? Yeah, there are people out there. Do they want a Jesus who will help their country and culture to dominate every other country and culture of the world? And why does this sound so familiar? Well... The Gospels do tell the story about a very similar group of people. And I'd like you to imagine the story with me. Jesus and his disciples have just walked the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem to eat the Passover meal. And I'm wondering what's going through the disciples' minds. I'm sure the excitement of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem not long before this was very fresh. You know, the riding on a donkey, the palm leaves... And the memory also of Lazarus's resurrection before that was still driving their expectations of the kind of power that Jesus could use for an earthly kingdom. And so this Passover must have felt more like a state occasion to them, an introductory celebration of the exciting things that they're expecting. So they arrived at the house and they greeted the owner and everything was ready for them. And somehow... This clicked in their minds as they arrived at the top of the stairs that positioning themselves 
to their own advantage suddenly became very, very crucial. Like squabbling roosters crowing for their territory, the disciples scrambled into positions around Jesus, each of them wanting to have the chief seat at the feast. And all that jockeying for the best position only brought to the surface what was always most always uppermost in their minds. The question, who was the greatest among the disciples? And you know, it was so opposite to Jesus' own attitude of unselfishness and serving others. Jesus' whole life was an illustration of his personal mission statement. Uh, We actually read it today, I think. Not, Not to be served, but to serve. And the only problem was that the disciples had not learned this lesson. In a little over 24 hours, Jesus is going to be dead. He's going to leave the whole missionary outreach to these guys and look at where they're at. Look at where they're at. And they haven't learned this lesson. And so I believe it was such a special burden for him and it hurt him to think of it. I think it actually grieved him. So little time and yet so much to tell his disciple before his death and and they weren't ready for it. And so as they began eating the meal, a very strange, awkward, uneasy silence that they all felt. And Jesus didn't say anything and it appeared that he was waiting for something. And if that wasn't bad enough, they had to sit down at their table with their dry, dirty and stinky feet. No one came to wash their feet, as was customary. The pitcher of water, the basin and the servant's towel were all there, but there was no servant. One of the disciples should have stepped up to the responsibility, but all of them were totally above that. They refused, wouldn't even think about it. Jesus waited, but when none of them made a move, he rose from the table and took off his outer garment. And to his disciples' complete surprise, he picked up the servant's towel and wrapped it around himself. And they were stunned, shocked. And without saying much at all, Jesus picked up the basin and poured water in it. Then he turned to Judas and began washing his feet. Oh, Judas, Judas, why are you going in this direction? Why? Oh, the love that Jesus had for Judas. And at first... Judas was moved by Jesus' act of love. But then the more he thought of it, he began to be really offended by the thought of Christ washing his feet and that of everyone else's. I mean, if Jesus could do that kind of thing, how could he be Israel's king? He was too humble, too loving, too gentle for that. There would be no hope for any worldly honour. And so Judas determined to disown Jesus because he, Judas, had in mind a different Messiah, a different kingdom and a different God. In fact, the God that Jesus portrayed was very different, very much so. He does not live for himself. He created the world. He upholds everything. He constantly serves his creatures He makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He has a different kingdom that many 
than many anticipate. And so Jesus gave them an example that they would never forget. Were they ashamed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Humbled? Definitely. They got the message. They got the picture. And after Jesus finished washing their feet, he sat back down with a lot to say. In John chapter 13, verse 14, and onward Jesus said to his disciples, and I'll flick some of this up. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. Oh, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. Wow. And then in Luke chapter 22, verses 25 through 27, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger. And he who governs, as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. What a different impression of God Jesus was giving here. You know, there are really two kingdoms, aren't there? There's the kingdom of power and domination over someone else, that kingdom of pride, selfishness and competitiveness. Do you know this kingdom? It's out there. It's in the world. These are, those are the things that Judas believed in. And then there's the kingdom of Jesus, of his unselfish love and of serving one another, not caring for position over someone else. The kingdom, the kind of kingdom that leads us to, to let go of self-importance and to follow the example of Jesus. Which kingdom do you seek? Today, as we in this service wash each other's feet, may I suggest that what we talk about while we're doing it, or, or what we think about, is to reflect on what it would be like for us to have been there in that experience. Would we have been like Judas, or Peter, or one of the other disciples? And to imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to have washed our very own feet. I'll leave that thought with you as we separate. In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, before we partake of the supper, which has been prepared for us there, we do what they did in the Bible, and we, we practice what I was just talking about, the foot washing service. And it's called the Ordinance of Humility, and it's not meant for us to, to force us to be humble, we go there because we wish to do this because Jesus, if we were there, would have washed our feet and we also want to wash one another's feet because we love one another. So we're going to do this. And so the men and ladies will proceed to the hall behind me. There's two sections, ladies on the other side of the curtain 
uh, the black curtain, it's not the iron curtain, um, the black curtain, and uh, the men on this side here, and after we've washed one another's feet, we'll come back and partake of the supper. But before we go, before we separate, let's have prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for being our loving God, and we thank you for sending Jesus to be not only our sacrifice, but also our example. Help us, please, to be as loving and as humble to our brothers and sisters as Jesus was to those he counseled and worshipped with. And we thank you, Father, for his death, taking away our sin. Bless us during this foot-washing service and during the supper, and may we approach the communion table with a contrite heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got a story for the boys and girls, but if anyone would like to enjoy it as well, you're welcome to listen to. <laughs> All right. Now, this is just some devotionals for, for kids. The first one says, Today I feel strong. The Bible says, But the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. That was by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Once, a long time ago, there was a man who was very, very strong. He liked to build things, and his arms were strong, and he could lift big, heavy pieces of wood easily, and then take his saw and cut them quickly to the right lengths. His hammer made a loud noise in the workshop. Everyone knew when this man was working, because they could hear his saw and his hammer, and the hollow boom of wood being piled carefully in the corner for later use. Some people who are big and strong are so, are some people are so big and strong that their muscles look like baseballs and they almost look scary. Okay, it seemed they could crush you with a handshake. But not this man. While he was very strong, he was also very gentle. And he loved to be with children. One day he was sitting outside in the sun chatting with his friends and telling them stories. Some children came running up to play with him. No, go away, the man's friend said. He waved, waving their arms to scare the children away. The man heard them talking to the children that way. He held his arms open. Please don't do that, he said to his friends. Let the children come to me. Come, children, come here to me. He smiled at them. And those strong arms that could lift heavy pieces of wood and hammer nails and saw through thick chunks of lumber reached out gently to the children. He touched their faces, but he didn't hurt them. He lifted some of the children onto his lap, but he didn't squeeze them too tightly. Maybe you are strong too. Maybe you like to jump high and run fast and throw balls hard. But you can also sit quietly and read books or colour in and listen to music. Strong is nice, but gentle is nice too. It's always nice to be gentle like Jesus. Our next story is called Bandit and the Sugar Cube. Oh, really? You thought the story was going to be about Samson and it was about Jesus? Well, Jesus was strong because he worked in a carpenter shop, didn't he? So this one's called Bandit and the Sugar Cube. 
the Bible says it is possible to give away and become richer. Now, Sergi has had this story and he likes it. <laughs> Can you remember the good feeling that you get when you share? I heard a story one time about a raccoon who shared something, even though he didn't plan to, and he was surprised by what happened. His name was Bandit. Bandit grasped a white sugar cube tightly between his long black fingers and hurried to his water dish. He had never seen a sugar cube before and didn't intend for any of the other raccoons to know about it. As he ran past Mitzi, he turned her, she turned her back to him. Then he slipped part behind Frosty and she darted off to get away from him too. Nobody liked Bandit because he was mean. He bit, shrieked at them and pulled their tails. So nobody wanted to be near him. Nobody, that is, except Ben Bandito. Bandito was a new to the little raccoon family. She didn't know that Bandit was mean. Bent over his water dish, she lapped the milk that someone had poured into it just that morning. When he saw her, Bandit shrieked as though to say, get out of here. But Bandito just raised her head and looked at him, then went on lapping milk. Well, Bandit, Bandit must have been in a hurry to eat his sugar cube because he didn't waste time biting Bandito. He just dipped his sugar cube into the milk, as he did with all his food and prepared to eat. But can you guess what happened? It disappeared, the sugar cube. What, sh yeah, what does sugar do when it gets into warm milk? It dissolves. <laughs> the sugar cube just seemed to vanish in Bandit's hands, beginning to shriek. He threw his hands up in the air. He licked his fingers as though thinking that the sugar had somehow got inside them. Then he felt around the bottom of the bowl. But his sugar cube had vanished. It just disappeared. But Bandito kept on lapping the milk. It had seemed to become sweeter since Bandit had come over. Finally, Bandit raced to the place he had found the sugar cube before. There was one more. Grabbing it, he hurried back to the milk. Cautiously, he stared into the bowl, then lowered his second cube into it. Again, the sugar cube vanished. Bandit was really upset this time, but Bandito loved it. The milk was so sweet, she didn't think she had ever tasted anything this good before. And it had become sweeter since Bandit had come. She liked being with him. From that time on, no matter what Bandit did to her, Bandito shared everything with him. She shared her favourite cheeks. She shared her cosy nest and she shared her pretty trinket she found. Now Bandit had more things than he ever had before and all because he shared his sugar cubes. Before long, Bandit wasn't mean anymore. Do you know why? He had found a friend by sharing. Isn't that a good lesson of what can happen when we share? It can make other people kind because you're a friend to them. Okay, this one says, you can do anything. The Bible says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. One afternoon, I was sewing doll clothes outside under one of the trees in my yard. Mother had cut out a piece, pieces and shown me how to hold the needle carefully and push it in and out of the fabric, just so. Slowly, I stitched the little dress. Then, 
all of a sudden, the needle pulled free, free of the thread. The needle went flying out of my hand and landed somewhere in the grass. Do you think that would be fun? How was she going to find it? <gasps> oh, I gasped. I have to find my needle. I can't leave it out here. Someone might step on it. Frantically, I began pulling the grass apart to look down in the dirt for my needle, but I couldn't see it anywhere. Slowly, I started looking in a circle around where I had been sitting, first close to where I was and then further away, but the needle was nowhere to be found. You think it was in the tree? For a moment, I thought of running into the house to ask Mother for another needle. But I knew she would just tell me to try and find that one first. What shall I do now? I wondered out loud. Oh, and then all of a sudden, she had an idea. Kneeling down right under the tree, I prayed about my missing needle. Dear Jesus, I whispered, barely moving my lips. I know you are busy up there keeping the world going around and everything, but I didn't mean to lose my needle. Could you please help me find it? Thank you. Amen. Slowly, I opened my eyes and looked around. And what do you suppose I saw beside my knee? The missing needle, lying on top of the thick grass, twinkling in the sunshine. Do you think it was there before? Maybe God sent an angel to pick it up for her. I didn't get off my knees. Without picking up the needle, I closed my eyes tight again. Thank you, Jesus. I knew you would do it. Amen. Did you know Jesus cares even about the little girls and sewing needles, doesn't he? And he can even lift a needle out of the grass. God can do anything. Wow. Paul records in the book of Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now I invite uh, Elder Clive, or Clive, Brother Clive, to pronounce the blessing on the bread. You on there with me, please? Father in heaven, we humbly come before you this morning. We know that Jesus gave his life for us and that it was his blood and his body that he shed for us. And Father, we've come today to partake of the bread and the wine and the bread represents the body of Jesus help us this day as we partake to remember to contemplate to cast our minds back as to what Jesus has done for us and uh, help us be mindful each and every day throughout the coming weeks that Jesus is our all and all. We pray in his precious name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat. also records that at the same meal when Jesus raised the cup where they read out the new covenant he said these words in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me Jesus also told us, this cup, I'm sorry, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And I'll ask for Brother Richard to pronounce the blessing on the wine. Father created us. Father, the juice that represents your blood as you died on the cross for each one. We ask that you continue to be with us, Lord, and I walk with you, surrender our hearts to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.
Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink from it, all of you. You often see me have a silent prayer at the end of each of the emblems and it's pretty much the same prayer all the time and that is that people that have eaten the bread and shared the wine, the, the body and the blood of Jesus, that as they have made it, um, as they've partaken of that, that they have recommitted their lives to you, that it's a, it's a genuine re recommitment, it's a it's not a big thing to ask, it seems to come, which then leads me to this really fine last prayer as we, our, our last hymn as we go into it. Um, what we've just done and celebrated the sacrifice that Jesus has done for us has no bearing on us unless we now commit our lives to our, to our Lord in the fullest possible way. So having said that, please stand and sing with me. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way.
Father, nothing goes without you noticing, without you seeing. And you know not only what we see on the outside, but you also see our hearts as well. And my prayer is, Father, that our hearts right now, every one of us, is in tune with you. And that we wish to not only follow the example that Jesus has done and keep all your commandments and love our fellow men, but we look forward to the day when Jesus takes us home where we can see you face to face. And so, Father, help each one of us as we've recommitted our lives. See it through that we will be ready for Jesus when he comes. And this is our prayer in his wonderful name. Amen. Amen.